The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Take your Bibles and join me in John chapter 15. We are working our way through John chapter 13, 14, 15, 16, and 17. And the reason is, this is the, the farewell discourse of the Lord. This is what's been called the upper room discourse, the final conversation. This is Jesus' final night with his most intimate men talking about the most important things on his heart. We find our way into John chapter 15, and as we'll discover in a moment, we've just left the upper room. If you'll look at the very last phrase of chapter uh, 14, verse 31, get up, let us go from here. And as Jesus is walking probably down the slopes of the uh, eastern side of the Temple Mount, He looks into his disciples' fearful eyes and begins to say this. John chapter 15, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it, so that it may bear more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit, For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. This is a passage familiar to most people who know something about the Old Testament. It's certainly one of the most prolific figures in Christian imagery. There's much art developed and devoted around this imagery that Christ is the vine, believers are the branches, and the Father is the vine dresser. As you know, we moved, our family did, from California uh, last summer to be a part of Mission Road Bible Church. When we lived in California, part of our annual uh, kind of uh, clock was to go during the summer up to some friends of ours uh, who lived up uh, north of Bakersfield in the middle of the San Joaquin Valley who were fruit farmers. Um, Some of my favorite memories with my sons are going up there and eating some of that fruit. Each year, we would go on a tour of the vineyards. They would take us into the factory and the groves. If you ever have an opportunity to do that, you have to see how much work goes into the evaluation of fruit. And then you'll find out how segregated it is and how discriminating it is because we only get certain kinds of fruit. Let me just tell you right now, the best fruit people overseas buy at about three times the cost, but ours is pretty good nonetheless. I can't describe to you what it's like, though, to go out into the groves and to pull off What's my favorite fruit, which is called a pluot. You ever heard of a pluot? It's a combination between an apricot and a plum. My mouth is watering right now. 
And I remember Andy pulling off one of those pluots that still had the white bloom on it. I would try to shine it off. He'd say, no, just eat it. Okay. Taking a big bite of that. Fruit so juicy that the, fruit, the juice would just come down off the fruit, onto your hand, roll down your wrist, over the forearm, down to your elbow, and start dripping. Have you ever had a piece of fruit like that? That's the grace of God. One of the most fascinating things to watch, though, during this season is when all the fruit is blooming, when all the fruit is coming on the, onto the trees, onto the vines, something happens. Fruitful branches are very clearly identified. They're identified by the, the size of the fruit that they produce. They're identified by the juiciness of the fruit they produce. But all of these branches that produce fruit are left alone to produce fruit. But then you find on these vines and on the trees, whether it's grapes or other fruit, you find vines and branches that are not producing fruit. Very simple thing happens when you see a branch that's not producing fruit. It's cut off and it's thrown away. You could tell the ones that have been through this pruning process before, though, because there were there were stumps on the trees or on the vines, and, and those branches that had been pruned, because the ones who stayed after they produced the fruit are cut back, and they're cut back and cut back. And these branches and these, um, these, these limbs are big and fat and gnarly and healthy, vibrant, strong. Well, as we're moving through this section of John, known as the farewell discourse, the upper room conversation, the upper room discourse, we find ourselves talking about fruit. Fruit was a very common uh, uh, experience in the ancient Near East. Now, I call it experience, not fruit, because the, the entire cycle of liquidation was revolving around, revolved around the grape industry. And there was a good reason for that. Grapes were taken, they were fermented, they were turned into wine at various different alcoholic levels. And the primary reason that that served was it purified the water. At the end of chapter 14, Jesus finishes talking to his disciples, and we find that they leave the upper room and begin to make their way towards Gethsemane. We're going to find our way in Gethsemane in just a few chapters. They start walking out, and I have to use a little bit of sanctified imagination here. At this point, Jesus and his men are not safe. I don't think they... They uh, had a parade walking through the streets of Jerusalem at that time. They'd have no doubt made their way through the streets of Jerusalem very quietly. Jesus knew that his betrayal was on. He knew he was a wanted man. He knew there was a warrant out now for his arrest for a capital crime of claiming to be king and blasphemy. And if you can just put your mind around this for, for just a moment, I, I, if I can give you a visual. Jerusalem sits almost like a cone inside a volcano. It's not volcanic, but there's a, there's a ridge surrounded by a, a rim of mountains. And um, up on that Temple Mount, as you know, is where Abraham went up to slay Isaac. Valleys all around this mount, this temple. It's a beautiful, beautiful scenario. No matter which direction you come from to Jerusalem, you come over the hill and you see valley and then Jerusalem. The upper room was on the south and west part of 
Jerusalem. The Kidron Valley is on the eastern side of the Temple Mount. So they had to travel all the way through the streets of Jerusalem. It's about a half mile to the temple and then another quarter mile over the side. They had to travel through that, the, 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 the night, the moonlit air of, of Jerusalem, knowing they were in trouble, knowing Jesus was wanting. They made their way over to the ridge that would come down to the bottom of the Kidron Valley. And on the opposite side of the Kidron Valley was the Mount of Olives. We know for a fact that Jesus is going to end up at the bottom where Gethsemane was. We also know from chapter 18 that that's when he crosses over the bottom of the valley. So this is what we can surmise. They've left the upper room, and they've not yet come to the, to the bottom of the valley, yet he's talking about vines and vineyards. Ancient historians tell us that that, that slope on the eastern side was full of vineyards. It makes most sense then that as he was going through the vineyards, now out of the quietness that he needed to maintain during Jerusalem, he's moving down that ridge and he stops at a vineyard and begins to talk to the disciples. As they approach the bottom of the valley, though, the tone of his, of his charge changes. It's been very endearing, very service-oriented before that. Jesus creates a new passion in his disciples from this point forward. The tone changes. It's very instructive. It's very teaching. We, we come to a series of commands As they begin to move down that ridge, down that slope, four themes are going to occupy his words. Their relationship with himself in verses 1 to 8. Their relationship with each other in verses 9 to 17. Their relationship with the world in verse 18 all the way through chapter 16, verse 4. And then their relationship with the Holy Spirit in 16, verses 5 to 15. Jesus is consumed with making sure they're equipped to have everything they need as he's about to leave them. At this point, we're inside hours, maybe inside the sight of people clamoring around and organizing armies as they walk through Jerusalem. This is his final conversation with his men on that last night, and I am continually overwhelmed with how them-focused he was. You know, being in pastoral ministry, you tend to be able to be with people at a lot of different points, important points in their life. One of those is when they're facing death. I have sat on the, the deathbed of many, many believers, many friends. I've held the hands of people who have died. It's a very sobering time. In all of those times, there is an unavoidable focus and concentration on self, on eternity, on preparation, on making things right. Oh, sure, there are people who, who know the Lord who are greatly concerned about the people they're going to leave behind, about making sure that things are set. But it's impossible to ignore yourself in that situation. Until we get to the prayer in chapter 17... This last discourse is entirely void of any concern Jesus has for himself on the night before his execution. I mean, if you can just put yourself in his sandals for a second, would we have that kind of focus? Would we have that kind of 
care, where we have that kind of love. Jesus entirely devoid of his own concern, and all of his concern is in getting them ready to live life with him, without him, knowing that if they can't get to Jesus, they're going to try to get to who? Them. The passage before us then contains a parable. But this is different than most parables Jesus tells. This, this is not a story. This is, has no plot. It's really just an extended illustration. It's an extended metaphor that he works throughout the rest of these verses. One of the most important things to remember, by the way, when you look at any parable, and probably the greatest um, mistakes made in parabolic interpretation, understanding the stories of Jesus, is when you try to stress every detail to make some point. Jesus wasn't trying to make 15 points here, just a couple. He wanted them to know one main lesson. They weren't taking notes. He was telling an illustration to get a point across. This was a metaphor. This was a simile. This was an illustration. And the main lesson here is that there is an indescribably tight solidarity and unity between Jesus and his believers. This was going to be so important. He was about to leave them. He was about to be executed tomorrow morning. In another month or so, he's going to be ascended back to heaven, and he's going to be physically away from them for the rest of their lives. Yet... He talks of their unity with him, even though he's not physically present. The closeness of this literal vine and branches is obviously in his mind, and the closeness of the vine and the branch, this grapevine, and the, the unity that they have together was to be the overwhelming, overriding visual illustration they were to take. Here we have grapevines. The branches of grapevine get all of their strength, as you know, from the vine. The branches pull their nutrients from the vine, their beauty from the vine, their life from the vine. The sap and juices that come from the vine provide the branches, their leaves, their buds, their blossom, their ultimately their fruit. If you take a grapevine, this is a obvious, but if you take a, a branch off of the vine and lay it on the ground, it will not bear fruit. Without the vine, the branch has no life of its own. There's a second lesson also hovering in these verses, and that's that there's true and false branches. There are those who are attached to the vine and are genuine believers, but there are those who have some visual attachment to the vine, but that are not real branches. So we're going to go through this since it's just a parable and look at the description, the explanation, and the application. The description, the explanation, and the application of this parable. In verse 1, we find the description. Very simple. The description in verse 1. I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. John contains the, the record of several of Jesus' illustrations about his headship over, unity, headship over and unity with believers. For example, in chapter 2, he's the body and the true temple. His body is the true temple. He's the, the true bread from heaven in chapter 6. He's the water that truly quenches thirst in chapter 4. He's the good shepherd in chapter 10. He's the life which resurrects men from the dead in chapter 11. He is all about teaching these men something that, that he didn't want them to ever forget. And you see explained in the epistles. There is a 
unity and a correlation a shared life and experience between me, Jesus, and the believers. Here, he's the true vine, and we are branches that shoot off of him. Notice here that Jesus is the true vine. He doesn't say, I'm the vine. Later, he'll say, I'm the vine. Here, he says, I am the true vine, the unique vine, the only vine. True in reference to the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, there were, there's lots of images about vines and branches. Also, he's looking at this, this physical vine. He's saying, I know you see this, but let me tell you, I am the true vine. This relationship, this parable that God has created in nature actually illustrates me. I'm the true one. Also notice here that the father is the vine dresser. When it comes to the delicate process of evaluating a true vine from a false, a, false, a true branch from a false branch in a when it comes to the delicate process of pruning believers, God doesn't delegate that to angels. He doesn't send a prophet. He doesn't send a special man. The Father himself does this. So there's the parable. Jesus is the vine. The Father is the vine dresser. And we'll find out in a moment. And people who profess Christ are the branches. Some true and some not. Secondly, we find the explanation. What does this mean? Let's, let's understand it. In verses 2 and 3, we find the, the explanation that the Lord provides. Every branch in me. Stop right there. Now we've moved, obviously, from the physical to the metaphorical. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he, that's the vine dresser, takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, God he, the vine dresser, prunes it so that it may bear much more fruit. You are already clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. This is a description of that process that I was explaining that I've seen up in Central California over and over. It's the pruning of a tree, cutting off branches that aren't producing and trimming back those that are. It's a description of that pruning process. Now, the pruning process has two levels, two dimensions. One is aggressive and one is delicate it involves if we can say it this way a knife and a fire the knife for the pruning the fire for burning up the unproductive branches first there's the removal of what um, uh, people who run fruit uh, farms and vineyards call sucker branches you know sucker branches right it's a branch that grows up grows off of the shoot grows off of the of the vine and grows and grows with no fruit, but it takes all of the nutrients from the ones that are bearing fruit because they have to work harder to bear the fruit. They grow faster. They grow more obvious. Sometimes they grow bigger. These are branches that are growing on the vine but bearing no resemblance to the others when they get fully grown and no fruit as they grow. But they do take precious nutrition from the rest of the branches and they must be removed or the whole vine suffers. That's the aggressive part. They're cut off, and as we'll see in a minute, they're thrown in the fire. Then there's the delicate side. Not only the aggressive, but the delicate side. This is the, the knife. This is the pruning shears. The cutting back of productive branches or pruning them is the process that thickens them, the, makes the branches more productive over time, makes them more fruitful, gives them bigger fruit, gives them more fruit, gives them abundant fruit. It's cutting it back, cutting it back, cutting it back. 
Notice how Jesus continues to play out the metaphor. The branch in me, he takes away. He prunes it. Now we're in the the spiritual dimension as he's explaining this. Bearing fruit, by the way, is referred to five times in this passage and six six times by implication. There are two categories of branches, fruit-bearing branches and non-fruit-bearing branches. The Lord first addresses the fruitless branches here. He's going to provide a more detailed instruction about these fruitless branches when we get down to verse 6. Simple point is that fruitless branch is done away with. It's cut off. It has no position and no portion in the vine. It's disposed of. And again, in verse 6, we're going to come back and see the, the terror of what that actually means in the life of someone who professes Christ who doesn't know him. But just for now, the attention is given to the branches that really bear fruit. If there's fruit on the branch or life in the believer, the promise here is that the vine dresser, the Father, will come and prune it so that it will bear more fruit. So we will bear more fruit. Now, if you've seen someone prune a plant or a vine or a fruit tree, you understand that it involves taking part of it off. You're cutting it back. Uh-huh. First time I ever saw my grandmother pruning a tomato plant, I thought that she lost her mind. She was cutting this thing back to nothing. This big, beautiful bush was down to this little stick thing after she finished. And I said, Mama, what are you doing? She said, I'm making it so it'll grow bigger and better tomatoes next time. That's what's going on here. Now, let's ask a couple of questions. First of all, what is fruit? Let's move into the metaphor. Jesus says that we must bear fruit. What is fruit? There's a lot of suggestions for what this fruit is. Um, Ultimately, though, if I can boil it all down, this fruit is simply that which identifies that we belong to Christ. Grapevines are identified as grapevines because they produce grapes. Fruit are those virtues, those works that point to the Father, especially in the next section we'll see, love. Next week he comes back and says, the primary fruit that you're going to experience that people will know that you know me by is is love. You'll love one another. Galatians 5 talks about the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. The next passage highlights love, the very first one in the fruit of the Spirit. And the parallel in the passage is that of evidences of belonging to the vine. Fruit is simply Christian virtue. And I don't want to take you through all the arguments that I read. Some people said it's, it's, um, it's winning people to Christ. That's certainly a part of it. Some people said, no, it's only love because that's the next passage. Well, that's certainly a part of it. There's a lot of suggestions. I think when you put it all together, Jesus was being very simple and saying, grapevines produce grape. Christians produce Christian life, Christian living. Very simple. Don't miss the fact here, though, that, that the Lord prunes those who are genuine and real, cutting off things in our life that are unproductive. I tell you, Hebrews 12 says that a father, when he disciplines his child, shows that he loves his children the same way God the Father loves his children, so he prunes them, he disciplines them. Can you identify the pruning evidences of God in your life? Boy, I hope you can. It shouldn't be that difficult. Can you see areas that the Lord has said, that's enough, this direction, 
change course, frankly, the, 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 the most... The, the, the most securing part of my salvation in terms of my, my, my feelings secure, the security of my, my faith, it's rested in Christ and in God. I understand that. But the way I feel most secure, the what I, what I recognize most, I can't get away with anything. I just, and I try, sometimes hard. I get caught at everything. When I, when I, one of the things that I noticed when I was 16 and I became a Christian is I started getting caught at everything. And I was good at not getting caught at stuff. He'll prune us. Sometimes he prunes us through confrontation. Sometimes he prunes us through trials. Probably the most obvious way is by giving us those difficulties, right? C.S. Lewis calls it the problem of pleasure, not the problem of pain. He says the problem in our life is pleasure. Because when we have pleasure, we don't seek the Lord. When we have pain, we seek the Lord. And he prunes out of our lives things that don't glorify him and things that aren't ultimately and long-term in this life and the next good for us. I just got to ask, do you experience the pruning grace of God in your life? Look how this is regulated, verse 3. He says, some of you are clean. You are clean because of the word which I've spoken to you. Now, that's a direct reference back to Judas, who he says was not clean. Finally, he's saying, finally, the true believers in the disciple group are here. You are clean. But what caused them to be clean? The word which I've spoken to you. We'll come back to that in a minute and see that we're nurtured on Christ's words. Time in the word, studying God Christ's word which is now canonized in a Bible, looking at that is what causes God to have absolute, complete, recognized access to us in this pruning process. Oh, he may be pruning us all the time, but the more we're in the Word, we understand what he's doing, and it makes sense to us. Well, now we come, verses 4 to 8, to the application. And this is where we have to roll up our sleeves a bit, the application. Here's the central command in the passage. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. This is the explanation, the application all rolled into one. The word abide there is the the Greek word meno. It's an interesting word. It means to take up residence, to move into. When you went to meno into a house, you would go and move into it. You took all your possessions. You left everything behind. That's now your new residence. Here the idea is to take up residence, to live with and in the presence of Christ. And the idea is drawing life from him so that it bears fruit. It's the only command, as I said in the passage, it's a command that still calls out to us today to abide in Christ. Not just to know all of our theology, and theology is important, just not to know all of our arguments, and arguments are important, but to abide in the living, resurrected person of Jesus Christ. It's not about a club we join. It's not about an abstraction of truth. Christianity, as defined by the Lord here, is fundamentally a relationship with a resurrected Savior. If Jesus is alive and offers us a living, vital, ongoing, present tense, experienced relationship with himself right now, there is nothing more important in this world. Nothing
John 6, 56, he who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. He's not talking about cannibalism. He's talking about being so close that you're taking in everything from Christ as your spiritual nutrition. 1 John 2, 6, the one who says he abides in him on himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. Abiding in Christ produces fruits. Very simple. To abide in Christ, what does that mean? It means to live for him. It means to live in reference to him. It means to live because of him. It means to live, and I think this is the key, with a recognized awareness of his greatness and his presence. We live with a recognition that Christ is alive, that he is here, that he's present, and it makes a difference. This is how to live life with an invisible Savior. He goes on, I am the vine, verse 4, verse 5 rather, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, what he just commanded, and I in him, what he promised, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I love how Jesus bounces in this, these illustrations between his, his pronouns. It's, it's kind of abstract. He who, he who, and then he turns and says, you. Looks right in the disciples' eyes and says, you. Here is the proof for abiding in Christ. Literally bearing fruit. Being a true branch in the true vine means living a life that evidentially belongs to Christ and bears the marks of a Christian. Can I put it as simple as I can? If the people in our circles, not always the acquaintances, sometimes they don't get a good glimpse, but if the people in our circles, both in the church and aren't, cannot observe the obvious evidences of the fruit of the Spirit, the obvious evidences of Christ-like living, there's a problem, a big problem. Verse 6 tells us about that problem. But let's, let's look at this, first, uh, this verse, phrase rather in verse 5 before we go on. There's been a lot of people getting in, gotten in trouble over this little phrase. Um, that what does the nothing mean there? Apart from me, you can do nothing. I mean, um, th- th- does that mean you can't brush your teeth without Jesus? Does that mean you can't go to the store without Jesus? Does that mean if you don't know Jesus, then you can't hike a trail? No, no, no. The do nothing here and the do everything in a moment is all in reference to fruit bearing. That's the immediate context. Verse six, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away as a branch, dry, as a branch and he dries up and they gather them and cast them into the fire and they are burned. I have to tell you, this week I read an account of someone who is um, very anti the lordship of Christ and salvation. And this, this theologian, who you would all know by name, actually dr- tried to describe this as, see, what happens is the, their, their, their works are burned up, but they're still saved. Can, can you look at that again with me? If anyone does not abide in me, he, not his works, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up. And they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. This is not talking about the things you did that are burned. This is talking about hell. This is talking about the real living reality of a God who judges. 
Matthew 15, 13 says, he answered and said, every plant which my heavenly father did not plant will be uprooted. 1 John 2, 19, they went out from us, but they really were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have remained with us, but they went out so that it would be shown that they are not of us. And as you know, 1 Corinthians 5, but actually I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother, if he is an immoral person or covetous, or even an idolater, or a viler, a drunkard, or a swindler, not to even eat with such one. The point is, there were, there are those who say they belong to Christ, but whose lives don't bear the fruit to match that profession. That, that there's a hotter hell for those who profess and don't produce than those who never heard. Matthew 7, these are such sobering words, it's hard to even read them. Matthew 7, 19, every, brand, every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their, what? Fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter in. Many, this is unbelievable, not some, not a few, many. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out many demons and in your name perform many miracles? Look, Lord, look at all we did did under the, the auspices, under the banner that we're Christians. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. Listen, you who practice lawlessness. Here we come back to the knife of the fire. Christian bears fruit. God prunes them. They bear more fruit. There's a progression. We're not talking about perfection here, folks, are we? No one's perfect except Christ. We're talking about progression, pruning, repentance, turning. That's what the knife of the vine dresser does. But there's also the fire, which takes those who profess to know Christ, but whose lives don't pursue Christ, who have no part in abiding in Christ, whose fruit doesn't bear a resemblance to Christ. And they go to hell. Even though they'll say they belong in heaven. These these folks are so deceived. Think about this. They've deceived themselves their whole life. They get all the way to the judgment. Confused. Lord, I'm about to go into heaven. He says, actually, no, no, you're not. And then they argue. They give a justification. Didn't I, didn't I, didn't I? And he said, no, no, you practiced lawlessness. Your life was fruitless. Listen, I... Can I just beg you, do you know Christ? Does your life life bear fruit? Not in perfection, but in progression and direction. Are there evidences of grace in your life? If there's not, let me beg you, run. Don't walk, run to the cross today. He will cover that sin and begin bearing fruit as we abide in him. This is not some conjuring of us being better and trying harder and developing more control. Self-control is a fruit. It comes after. It's a fruit of knowing Christ. Verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. 
Notice the sanctifying agent here. We're back to the same thing we saw a minute ago. The word, my words abide in you. The sanctifying agent of a believer's life is the word of Christ. Hey, does this promise really mean whatever you wish I'll do? No. This is not, a, this, it, it, it's really about seeing the work of the word in your life to bear fruit contextually. This should be at the top of every believer's prayer list. If you can turn this very quickly into a prayer request, ask me what you wish. What do we wish? We should wish to bear more fruit, to be more like Christ, to act more like him, to accomplish more for his kingdom purposes. And everything runs into the crescendo in in verse 8. My father is glorified by this. That you bear much fruit and so demonstrate, prove yourself to be my disciple. This is the great motivator. This is the great result of of our faith. It bears fruit. You say, well, that's all about works. Well, Verse 16 of Matthew 5, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and do what? And glorify your Father who is in heaven. It all goes back to him. It's all the glory of God. We're not trying to produce good fruits to be better people, to be observed and admired more. We're producing fruits to say, look what God did with a guy like me. Are you, can you believe that I have virtues that resemble Christ? Those don't come naturally. And those that do look like they come naturally are rooted in wrong motives. How clear is this? So prove yourself or come to fruition or literally become my disciples. Jesus is clearly laying down the foundation that fruit bearing is proof of authentic Christianity. It couldn't be any more clear. People should see our good works and glorify our Father. Without going into it, there's a passage in 1 Corinthians, 1 Timothy rather, 1 Timothy 5, 6 that indicates it's possible to be dead spiritually while being alive physically. Looking like we have a live faith but it's dead. So where does that put us? It puts us in asking are we true branches or are we, are we sucker branches? that draw what we can out of Christ, draw what we can out of the church for our own benefits, for our own musings and even growth in the eyes of others, but bear no fruit. The church, the Achilles heel of the church are these sucker branches that grow in every local assembly on the planet. My prayer and question to you is, knife or fire? Knife or fire? Do you feel, sense, know, experience the pruning presence of God that perfects you, that crushes you, that confronts you, that changes you? Or are you professing with no fruit? It goes back to the third commandment, right? Taking the Lord's name in vain, which has nothing to do with cussing, 
nothing. Taking the Lord's name in vain meant to take on the Lord's name to carry, to wear, the Hebrew is nasa, to wear the Lord's name, and it means nothing, it's in vain. Do we have the courage in our church as loving brothers and sisters and believers to approach someone and in humble graciousness say, where's the fruit? Do you have the courage if you recognize that you are a fruitless Christian, just an Easter chocolate bunny, Looks great on the outside, but is hollow, hollow on the inside. No reality, no substance. Do you have the courage? In a few minutes, there'll be some, some folks over here in our prayer room. Love to talk to you. Do you have the courage to come and say, I, I don't want to get to the judgment. I would rather drop all of my pride right now and say, please help me, than get all the way to the judgment and say, Lord, Lord, and he reject me. Today's the sal- day of salvation. Time is now. Lunch can wait. Run to the cross. And those of us who are believers, (laughs) embraces pruning. Pruning always hurts. We should turn back to the Lord in that, not away from him. Father, we are those who, just as Aaron led us in those songs earlier, those who understand the substitutionary atonement that you sent your son to die as a substitute in the place for us that we can believe and be resurrected from the dead. And we also affirm, oh, we recognize, we confess that we need to abide in you or our lives' fruit is useless and will be burned up. Lord, cause us to have a quick and a keen awareness of our spiritual state. Cause us to not trifle with the gospel, cause us, give us an awareness of the gravity of this passage, that there are true branches and false branches. And give us the courage and awareness to encourage each other in true spiritual evaluation. And Lord, I, I recognize, I feel in the, in the gravity of this passage that we all could be beat up by it and say we're not producing enough fruit, and, and we would be right, and you would be so right in assessing that. But where there is fruit, we invite your pruning that there might be more, and more pruning that there might be more, and more and more. Lord, perfect us until the day that we see your Son. Continue to do the work in us that you promised that we would become bearers of the image of your son. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.